Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You're listening to the Wellness Her Way podcast. I'm your host, Gracie Norton, and I'm so excited to provide you with a space where you get to shape what wellness feels like to you. Wellness Her Way is where we make a home of our body, mind, and soul instead of jumping on trends for short-term results. We've got one body. We're going to nourish it, love it, respect it, and embrace it through all its forms. Before I went to see Dr. Amick and Dr. Pabla, I went to several different doctors most of which recommended solutions like birth control, metformin, and spironolactone to help with my symptoms. Not once were hormones part of the conversation. In fact, most doctors made me feel like my irregular periods, bloat, digestive issues, and constant fatigue were all just part of womanhood. I became so frustrated with not being able to find a long-term solution, which is what led me to look into integrative healing. After I was diagnosed with PCOS, you were the first doctor to really listen to my symptoms, guide me through lifestyle changes, and ultimately completely transform my health. I'm so happy to have you here as our first guest, and I kind of want to start just by having you explain what integrative medicine is for those who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. Uh, What a treat this is. So the easiest way that I can explain integrative medicine for me and and for Dr. Pablo, for us, it's, it's really opening our minds to understanding that there are some things outside of traditional medicine that are very effective for patients. And so it's truly integrating the best of Western medicine, American medicine in with other things that that can be beneficial for patients. And we work outside that traditional Western medicine model, but while still retaining quite a bit of the Western tradition and and things that we understand, things that work well. Yeah. And one of the things that I loved about being your patient was that before I even stepped foot into my appointment, you guys ran a full analysis and Mm -hmm. had me fill out a ton of paperwork. And you really tried to understand all my symptoms before you even saw me, as opposed to waiting until the appointment to be like, okay, let me know what's going on. So can you talk about why you guys like to gather the information before you see yeah, patients. Yeah, it's easy. At the end of the day, Dr. Pablo and I are just a couple of nerds, right? And so <laughs> we and we understand that information is vital. And so we look at every patient as a, a research case because we understand that every person is a little bit different. And so we want as much information about you as we can possibly gather. And we want to take the time to actually digest that information, to really pay attention to it. And I think uh, a lot of people can relate to an experience where you're waiting in, in the room for your physician or your provider to come see you and, 
you, you hear the footsteps at the door mm-hmm. and then you hear the papers rattle. Yeah. And then the knock on the door and they kind of explode in, you know. Yeah. And, and what I know from my experiences, unfortunately, those doctors are so pressed for time that they really are looking at your chart right before they come in the room. And so it's really hard to understand your patient unless you stop, sit down, and really analyze their responses to those questions. We'll tell patients before you come see us, you should plan on spending a couple of hours you know, answering right. those survey yeah. questions and really reading them. And I tell patients, read the question and read all the answers. Right. You know, see, does this apply to you? If it ever has applied to you, if you have to talk yourself out of it, then yes, it applies to right. you. And that helps us build this picture of, okay, what's really going on with this patient and how long has it been going on? Yeah. I think for us, it's just really gathering as much of the history as we can and then building from there as we go forward. Because again, most of the patients that come see us, like you, have been to doctor after doctor, specialist after specialist. And so you're a great historian because you've got a lot of great history to share. And so we just want to get access to that information and help build that plan for you. And that was the moment that I knew that I had found the right doctor. The fact that you guys took the time to really learn about me before I even stepped foot into my appointment really was the first sign for me that I was like, okay, this is going to be different. And it helps us because, you know, again, as scientists, you know, I, I tell people all the time, sometimes we have more questions than we do answers. And sometimes the results that we get, the replies we get, lead us down the path. Hey, we need to ask about this. We need to make sure we're asking these questions because this showed up in their questionnaire or this didn't show up in their questionnaire. So we got to make sure we dig into that a little bit deeper. And I know that healing from the inside out just takes a lot more patience, but it does have long lasting benefits. So can you talk about the difference between Band-Aid solutions versus healing with integrative medicine. Yeah, you know, again, we grew up in traditional medicine. I'm so fortunate. I've had a really awesome career that's taken me into a lot of different realms, including hospital administration. You know, I've been in other health organizations. And so I've been allowed to see a lot of things behind the curtains that patients don't get to see. And one of the things that we know is in in the United States, we do so well with acute medicine, strokes and heart attacks and trauma, these sort of things we just do such a great job with. We lead the world in technology and and understanding and outcomes in these things. But when it comes to chronic disease management, when it comes to preventative medicine, we're really one of the worst countries, honestly, which is really sad. It's very sad. And so from that perspective, you know, we can look at and say, if you have an acute injury, an acute illness, your chances of getting great medical care and surviving and and getting back to baseline before the injury insult in the United States is really good. From the integrative and functional medicine mindset, we want to figure out how can we prevent you from developing a chronic disease? If we can prevent you from developing diabetes, then you don't ever have to worry about diabetes, right? So that's the difference in where we are. The other thing I tell folks sometimes is remember, by the time they've come to see us, it's taken a lot of years to get to where they are that day. So I can completely relate to that. Yeah. So you've you've dealt with this. You've developed this issue. It's not like an acute injury. We taking the knife out of your leg doesn't start the healing of your leg right away. We've got to make some changes, and those changes can take a long time. And we're, sometimes we're changing your biochemistry, and those things can take a long time. One of the things that's important for our practice is to follow our patients closely, especially early on, to make sure that they're not alone. They're not just given a set of instructions and just kicked out onto the street and, hey, good luck. 
we really want to stay with them closely and then help them through that process. And one of the things I talked to you about too is like your our business model is set up so that we never have to see you again once yeah. we have yeah. made sure all of your symptoms are under control. Yeah. And that gave me so much peace knowing that your guys' mission was to truly help me heal yeah. and not find those Band-Aid solutions, but really help me understand the, the true benefits of of internal healing. And, and that's right. Yeah. It really gave me so and, much peace. And again, I think what's unique about our practice is we understand that, that sometimes you need a Band-Aid. You need a Band-Aid to heal, right? And so, you know, we'll tell folks, listen, we're not anti-medicine. Sometimes you need the pill. Sometimes you need the prescription. But our philosophy is that should be a bridge to healing. It shouldn't be something that you need every day for the okay. rest of your life. I think that's important to understand. And so when patients are looking for integrative providers, functional medicine, and, and I think it'll be important to maybe describe the difference in how we integrate integrative medicine and functional medicine. Yeah. So functional medicine is really the process of getting back to basic biology, fundamental physiology. How does the body work? How is it supposed to work? How is it supposed to function? And understanding that the body is a system made up of different integrated parts. So that's kind of the functional aspect of what we do, is how do we get the body back to its normal homeostatic function? This is one of the frequent questions that came up, is how do you find a good integrative medicine doctor? Oh, finding someone that connects with you in a way that speaks your truth. So that's something that's important to me. And, and sometimes people want someone to tell them what they want to hear, and that's not always the best thing. Understanding that you're a good provider, someone who understands good physiology, good foundational sciences, but also knows how to communicate with you in a way that helps you identify your truth and get you to the state and level that you want to get to. Yeah, I always remember walking out of our appointments feeling empowered and the fact that you really took the time to explain what was going on in my body in terms that I could understand yeah. made the world of a difference to me. So I want to yeah. thank you for doing that. Oh, and I kind of want to segue more into hormone health because this is one of the reasons that I wanted to come and see you just to gain a deeper understanding of what was really going on inside my body instead of having somebody tell me that, you know, birth control will fix all of your problems, come back and see us when you're ready to get off of it. And that was just a solution that personally I knew wasn't going to work for me long term. Mm. I know one of the first things that we did after my first appointment was talk about lab testing for hormone health. So can you talk about what tests you recommend for women who are struggling with their hormone health to gain more insight? Yeah, thanks for that. One of the most important things is that testing and, and looking at as much of the information as you can. So data points are important. And unfortunately, traditional medicine, the way you know the insurance model and how that works, providers have a lot of pressure on them to only order tests that are necessary and no one really knows what that necessary means, by the way. I mean, sometimes it means that the insurance company looks at the result and says, oh, that wasn't necessary. But looking at what those tests are telling you over a period of time. And so, you know, one of the things that I do at our practice is we do a four-point hormone panel. And some of that stems from just me being a girl dad. And I share this with folks quite a bit. Even still, there are conversations we have, and I think, you guys deal with that? <laughs> you know, we you, do. You guys think about that stuff? Like, if, if dudes had to deal with that, this the world would stop. It would like, be chaos. Yeah, chaos. I mean, <laughs> the football season would just be canceled if you know if dudes had to deal with oh the things that, that girls had to deal with. Um, so as a part of that, I put together a four-point hormone panel because what I realized is lab testing is often a snapshot in time. So you do one lab test. You, you check someone's estrogen level. 
and you say, gosh, well, that number, it's a normal number. But when you understand that the range of estrogen on a lab test, depending on the lab you go to, their methodology, but it can be somewhere between 0.5 and 300. Mm -hmm. So 71 is a normal number, isn't it? It looks normal to me. But what we know is that female hormones fluctuate and change pretty predictably, actually, throughout the entire menstrual cycle. Maybe we need to see what happens to that 71. Does it go up? Does it go down? Is 71 the highest? Is 71 the lowest? That four-point hormone panel that I recommend for a lot of women is saying, look, let's draw your blood at four different times during your cycle, and then we graph that, and we compare that to the textbook norm that we know about. So you're doing a full analysis at each point during the month as opposed to just getting that one snapshot. That's right. And then we can look back and say, hey, so this is what your uh, a normal graph would look like, and this is what your graph looks like. And so let's you know dig into that and figure out what may be causing some of these changes. So getting the information is so important. And again, unfortunately, a lot of the, the women that I talk to say, well, you know, my doctors say my, my lab values are normal. And I believe that. I believe that on that day and that snapshot in time, it fell within that normal lab range. But again, our integrative minds, our functional medicine minds go, just because it's in the normal range, does that mean it's in the optimal range? Is that the right range for you? And so even though it may be normal, it doesn't mean that it's right for you. Amazing. And there's some women too that maybe have hormone imbalance. And then there's also women that have been diagnosed with PCOS. So can you talk about the difference between someone who maybe has hormone imbalance and someone who has PCOS? Hormone imbalance becomes a catch-all phrase for, well, your hormones aren't what we think they should be, but we don't know why. So hey, it's a hormone imbalance. And so we, we want to dig in a little bit deeper to that. What hormone is it too high? Is it too low? And then what are all the possible reasons for that reason? Now, PCOS is interesting. And, the, you know, there are a lot of things in medicine in the years that I've been around and, and where we've learned over the years. So I kind of remember when PCOS, which stands for, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome, right, hit the mainstream. It was this aha moment that, aha, there's a, a whole list of symptoms that women have and if we do an ultrasound, we can see these cysts on their ovaries. So there, that, that's the connection. You have cysts on your ovaries, and it's causing this syndrome, this whole cluster of symptoms. After a few years, folks kind of realize, hey, wait a minute. I have patients with all these symptoms, but they don't have cysts on their ovaries. Right. So we kind of evolved that to go, well, you don't really have to have the cysts on your ovaries to have peace. But we didn't change the name. We left the name the same. It's really a specific set of symptoms that people have that fit into that mold of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Hormone imbalance just means, I don't know, your hormones aren't balanced. But again, it's really hard to pin down from folks. What does that actually mean? It's some of those things I think about when I'm nerding out by myself in the car and think, if if you tested 1,000 women, 100,000 women, how many women have a quote-unquote hormone imbalance, but they don't know it because they may not have symptoms? What does that really mean? Right. kind of means nothing. Right? What are those symptoms to look out for? So for a woman who may be feeling changes in her body, what are those symptoms that could be a sign of PCOS or hormone imbalance? Yeah, so one of the kind of the hallmark signs of PCOS is excess androgen hormones, elevated testosterone levels. So we'll see sometimes some what are called secondary sexual characteristics, right, of males in women. So you'll you'll notice hair growth, you know, on your chin or upper lip or excessive chest hair or you know, underarm hair and that sort of thing. Brain fog is pretty common, weight gain, the inability to lose weight, mood changes, depression, anxiety. 
sometimes hair loss, hair thinning, those sort of things we, we can see with PCOS. And those were all things that I experienced. And I know that we talked about this earlier, but I think the misconception is that you have to have cysts on your ovaries right. in order to have PCOS. So one of the things that really made a difference for me after I realized that I was experiencing all those symptoms is actually seeing it on paper after doing the four-point hormone panel test. So can you just walk through what hormones are being tested for that hormone panel? On that panel is the luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, we look at estradiol, which is one of the, the most potent estrogens that, that a woman has, progesterone. I look at prolactin and testosterone. So that's the panel. And again, what makes it a four point is we collect it at four points throughout the cycle. And then once you have the information from that test, you're able to then have a conversation with your patient about what the proper steps are, Correct. what supplements should be taken. And then there were also other things that I noticed that I hadn't looked into before, such as insulin resistance and cortisol. Can you speak on insulin and cortisol and how those play a part in our bodies? Insulin resistance has to do with how your body is able to metabolize sugar. So here's the disclaimer for anyone who's a cellular biologist or biochemist. I'm going to water this down pretty significantly. <laughs> yeah. So um, the way I learned it and, rem and remembered it in my own head is that we need sugar to get inside of our cells. Our cells use sugar for energy. But sugar can't just show up. So it's kind of like going to the prom and you got to have a date. So the only way to get into the cell is that sugar has to be connected with insulin. So we know that they have to be connected. The, the couple has to show up. Insulin knocks on the door and that's what allows sugar to get into the cell. And so people understand diabetes and the different types of diabetes. This isn't diabetes. This is just where that cell becomes a little bit resistant to the insulin. So it doesn't open the door right away when insulin knocks. Now, maybe that's because the surface of the cell has just become sensitized. The receptors aren't healthy. Maybe your body doesn't produce enough insulin. I mean, there are just different ways to look at insulin resistance, but the fundamental level is you're not able to move sugar into the cell as easily and readily as you normally could. And it's not diabetes. Now, there are lots of reasons that happens, and so there is a hormone base to that. So when we see people with a lot of adipose tissue, we know that adipose tissue actually secretes estrogens, right? So someone who may be overweight may have an imbalance in their estrogen, which may be connected to insulin resistance. When we can't get sugars inside the cell to make energy the way we want, your body, which is amazing, your, your body takes a look at that excess sugar and says, gosh, we should store that somewhere. We might need that later on. Let's figure out where we can store this carbohydrate in a way that we can break it down later and use it for energy. Sometimes that gets stored as fat cells. And so now we see the weight increase and pretty consistently insulin resistance. We see a lot of trunk weight, large bellies. And that's what I experienced. I was working out twice a day. I felt like I was doing all the right things. I was still eating healthy and... I just continued to gain weight. And mm -hmm. I know that cortisol probably had something to do with that because I was doing high-intensity workouts. So can you explain also how the cortisol may go hand-in-hand -hand with the PCOS symptoms and how that could yeah. attribute to more weight gain? Yeah, cortisol is one of those things that, that kind of gets tag-alonged with a lot of other things. So cortisol is a stress hormone. It, it does several things. So one of the things cortisol helps do, it actually helps wake you up in the morning. So right before you wake up, you'll have a big spike in cortisol. So everyone knows that sometimes on their day off, it doesn't matter if they don't set their alarm. Their eyes are wide awake at 6.04 a.m. just like it is every day. And that's because you get used to that pattern of cortisol spiking right before you wake up. 
but it's also a hormone that helps your body manage stress. For folks who've had psychology courses, right, we talk about eustress versus distress. I try to separate that, and there's psychological stress, right? And so eustress might be, hey, you've got a wedding coming up. It's a very happy thing, and psychologically you're building up. This is a good thing. It's good stress. It's eustress. Distress is maybe there's been a tragedy in your family, right? So this is very psychologically, you know, difficult. Physiologically, your body doesn't know the difference, That's what I talk about all the time because I had this exact experience when I lived in LA. I was doing all these exciting projects. I was really happy about what I was taking part in and I felt so excited to do the things that I was doing. But my body really did not know the difference. It didn't. At all. So stress on your body, no matter where it comes from, if, hey, if a bear breaks through the door right now, your body will have the exact same biochemical stress response as if you found out you just won the the winning lottery ticket. A few things happen. You get this rush of a short-term catecholamines. You get epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine. These are stimulants for our body, right? Your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up. All these different things happen. Longer term, your cortisol level goes up, right? And so it's a protective hormone that kind of helps us say, hey, look, we're under stress. We don't know why. We could be being chased by a bear for the last six weeks, but we're going to try to maintain homeostasis. We're going to maintain this system. So Every calorie we eat, we got to store because this is bad. So it doesn't care that you're working out, that you're eating well, that, <laughs> that you want to lose weight. Your body's saying, hey, I don't care what's going on. We're under stress. We're going to keep looking at survival for as long as we need to, as long as the stress stays in place. So you can have different types of stress. You can have cellular stress. So that leads us into talking about things like inflammatory processes. And, and PCOS is one of those that can cause stress. I mean, think about all the psychological stress that goes along with PCOS. I mean, the things that you've described, just being frustrated, you're fatigued, you don't have energy, but you know, you got to go to work today. I got to take care of the kids. You've, you've still got to live your life. And that causes a lot of stress and that bumps up that cortisol. So cortisol becomes this progenerator of cellular stress. And so as it stays high, we see a lot of anxiety. We see, again, high blood pressure. We see a heart rate's increase. We see all the things that happen with stress response. And so, again, your body goes into this mode of protecting itself. So what are some things that we can do to manage that cortisol? And what are some lifestyle changes that maybe we could make to lower the cortisol levels? I've said for a long time, I think the two worst pieces of advice we give people is eat better and exercise, right? (laughs) I've been given that advice a few times. Yeah, because no one knows what that really means. The things, when I talk about exercise, when I say, hey, you should exercise, I'm not saying go out and get a gym membership and start running five, 10 Ks, half marathons and doing these things. I'm saying find some physical activity that A, brings you joy, that you enjoy doing, and that just gets you to move, that just get, the rest will come. One of the things that was so frustrating for me is that when I was told to exercise more, I started doing more high-intensity workouts, and I really do feel like that was putting a lot of stress on my body. So switching to more of that low-impact movement and just finding exercise that I actually enjoyed and left me feeling more energized as opposed to working out with – I wasn't setting my intention properly to beforehand. So I think that mindset switch and slowing down, my body just really responded to that so much better. And I've seen that where someone gets that advice – and they go out and they start lifting weights or they start running three miles a day and they get an injury. Now they can't exercise. 
So all the things that come along with that, now I can exercise. Now I feel bad because I know I should be doing these things. But so there again, there goes that, that stress. So going for a walk is okay. It's good. You know, the integrative side of our practice, I tell people yoga. Hot yoga was so great for me. It yoga, made my body feel incredible. Uh, look, I'm going to be honest. I tried hot yoga once. I had, I, it's not for me, man. <laughs> hey, I, it's I, not for everybody. Oh, dude. I, I know. <laughs> but, um, but we love that, you know, and, and there's actually literature out there. You can look at literature and see all the great benefits of yoga. It's it's no impact, right? Most Zero of impact, it yeah. Should be. Swimming. And I've told people, listen, even if you're not a great swimmer, just why don't you just walk in the pool? Just walking around through water, there's some resistance there. And it's very low impact. It doesn't bother your knees, and it's a great way to do that. So that's the exercise piece. Do it. Do whatever you're not doing now, right? If you're not able to walk around your block, do that. Just do that. You don't have to get crazy with it. Sometimes less is more. Yeah, just start there. And then eating better. It's important to me that people understand when I say eat better, what I mean is I have no clue what you should eat. I have no idea what to tell you to eat because I don't know your biochemistry yet. So we got to figure that out. We got to know, hey, does avocado make you worse? You know, I can tell you, gosh, blueberries are are awesome for anti-inflammatory. But if your biochemistry, if your immune system reacts negatively to blueberries, well, that's the worst advice to give somebody. Exactly. This is to a T what I experienced because I was looking at advice online prior to seeing you. And, you know, I did take some time to educate myself, but you get online and you see, oh, the best thing for PCOS is you should be having celery juice first thing in the morning, switch to almond milk, make sure you're having eggs first thing. And then when I had my food sensitivity test, eggs, celery. Terrible. I could not believe it. And it was almost this moment of frustration for me where I'm like, I cannot believe the foods that I've been eating so regularly are ones that my body is not responding well to. And you're exactly right. It's frustration, but it's also that clarity part, that clarity aspect to having that lab testing done. So you have real results based off of your body because everybody is so individual and what works for you is going to be so unique and so different than what works for the next person. So this is a great segue into gut health and yeah. lab testing for figuring out what those food sensitivities are. So can you talk about that process? Yeah. I tell folks, a lot of patients will come and say, well, I've had food allergy testing and I think that's great. But let me let me kind of break down the immune system again to the cell biologist, to the immunologist, my apologies, but here we go. I think of a bar scene. Okay. So, so imagine the bar scene. Outside the bar, you have the bouncers, right? And I say that's IgM. Think muscle, think meathead. Uh, pretty nonspecific immune cells. But if they get activated, right, what do they do? If something's bad happening. They come in, they knock heads together, they drag the bad stuff out. We get on with our day. So that's IgM. The IgA, I want you to think about alerter or activator. Okay. So in our little bar scene, we've got Alice, IgA. Alice is sitting at the bar. And Alice's job is to let everyone know if she thinks something bad is happening. So she sees, she hears a big loud roar, a ruckus, and Alice might get really nervous and say, hey, I think something bad. No, it's just a bridal party, having a good time, Alice, relax, calm down. That's IgA. So IgG, think good fellows, right? IgG are the guys in the back. They're low key. They, I think about the old mafia movies that I like to, yeah. I used to like to watch. And I think the mafia is not going to do anything bad today to you, right? The IgG, what they're, what's going to happen is they're going to blow your car up a week from now when you least expect it. Yeah. Right. So that's, so IgG is a little slower to respond, but when it responds, there's definitely response. IgE, 
I, I want you to think about uh, EpiPen emergency room. So in our bar scene, IGE is your drunk cousin, Teresa, okay. right? Who after drunk a couple cousin. couple drinks is just completely out of control. Yeah. You have no idea what's can't going container. on. Can't container. Can't container. You can't <laughs> control her. There's nothing you can do. So IGE represents a true food allergy, right? This is the person that if they're on an airplane and smell a peanut, their throat closes, they have to have epi. I mean, immediate symptoms. And it's a cataclysmic failure of their immune system. We've got to know that. You have to know if you're truly allergic to something because you want to stay away from it. That's IgE. Most people have allergy testing that looks at IgE foods. Our allergy testing includes that, but it also includes IgG and IgM right? And IgA. So let's talk about, first of all, IgG. And this is something that's, it's almost fun for me uh, in our practice sometimes because I'll say, listen, you're not allergic to this, but you're very sensitive to it. If you eat something on a Thursday, you might not have a symptom until Sunday, maybe Monday afternoon. But it's so frustrating because you think, okay, why am I feeling this way? What have I had to eat today? So the symptom is a little bit more delayed. But most people don't think about food right? Monday afternoon, they have a headache, they have some muscle aches, they feel crappy, and they think, I mowed yesterday, and I didn't sleep well over the weekend. And and so you just kind of meet, like, why am I immediately feeling this way? They don't necessarily connect the fact that it's because they ate something a few days ago. So that's the IgG sensitivity we look at and say, hey, is there something that you eat that may activate your immune system and actually cause you symptoms? IgA is fascinating. And so again, remember, this is Alice the alerter, right? This is the one that kind of sets everybody off. And one of the interesting things about IgA is that it is most concentrated in the areas of our body that have access to the outside. So our respiratory tract has a lot of IgA. It makes sense. I mean, if you get something from the, the environment that was going to irritate or cause mm-hmm. infection, you want that IgA to be alerted right away and get your immune system mobilized. The other big area that your IgA is concentrated is your gut. And so much of the things that we bring into our body from the environment come through our, our GI tract. So... You can have allergy, IgE response. You can have sensitivity, IgG response. And almost all of that starts with IgA. So it makes a lot more sense when you kind of understand those things to say, listen, you're eating blueberries and are blueberries healthy? Of course they are, right? They check all the boxes for healthy. Strawberries are healthy. Avocados healthy. Absolutely, of course, of course. But when you consume avocado... The IgA, the little Alice alerter in your GI, she freaks out. And so she gets everybody on board. So now your immune system is all jacked up. So now paint this picture. You're eating healthy. I'm going to put that in air quotes. Mm -hmm. Eating healthy. So you're having strawberry smoothies for breakfast. You're having avocado for lunch. And you got some leftover avocado. So let's throw that on some chicken for dinner, right? And Uh, And then you do this food sensitivity test and you realize that you're very sensitive to strawberries and avocado. Now what we've done is we've created cellular stress because you're eating these quote-unquote healthy foods that your body reacts negatively to. You're putting your immune system in a state of hyper alert all the time. Your body doesn't, like something's going on. Like it's crazy. We don't know. She's trying to kill us. We we don't know why she keeps eating the avocado. This is awful. (laughs) We hate the avocado. And so again, now make this connection. So now you have this cellular stress, this chronic inflammation going on in your body all the time. And now guess what? Your cortisol level starts to go back up. So we talked about cortisol. So now you actually have stress response from the perspective of you have elevated. Now you're not sleeping well. You're anxious all the time. You've got headaches, all these, see how these are all connected. All going together. And I think it's so important for women to hear this because 
it's such a frustrating part of the process to feel like you're eating healthy to wake up and have the avocado or the celery right. juice. And this whole time your you body's viewing it almost as an invader and right. you're elevating the cortisol and your stress response. And that's why I think lab testing is so important. So important. And so you recommend that's the first place that people start if they're noticing issues with their gut health right. or having digestive health issues. That's one of the, the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak. It's the easiest. Let's just find that out. I've got so many stories. Uh, one of the stories I, I like to tell folks was a, a patient who had a lot of symptoms. We did the sensitivity and onions was on her list. And uh, her husband was in the practice as well. And uh, they said, do you have any idea how many onions we eat every day? So culturally, the two of them had some really cool cultural backgrounds and their food preparation. Breakfast had onions in it. Lunch had onions in it. Oh, my goodness. Dinner, the dishes, they had onions. And, and so I said, look, let's just leave the onions out and see how you feel. And, uh, you know, when we saw them back, they said, oh, my gosh, that was like the number one thing. The only thing we did, we're just going to leave onions out. We're going to stop with the onions. And most of her symptoms either went away completely or got so much better. It was one of those things where she had to think of, when was the last time I had a headache? Uh, well, it's been, guess what? That symptom got better. And right? I can completely relate to that because when I started moving, removing my food sensitivities based off of my blood work, I noticed that my digestive health was so much better, yeah. a lot less inflammation. So I think that test is so yeah. important and it's good for people to hear that that's the best place to start because again, everybody is so unique. And to mm -hmm. say that one food is healthy for one person, it could be wrecking havoc on right. somebody else's digestive health. And there are things that we all just have to understand that our food supply isn't the same. It's not the same as our parents had, as our grandparents had. And so... There are a lot of foods today that are inflammatory to us that wasn't inflammatory when our grandparents were children or our age and their parents. Oftentimes we hear, why is there so much PCOS now? There didn't used to be. Why is there so much anxiety there used to be? Well, you know, honestly, I associate that with a lot of food, more processed food. Look, we, we've got to modify our food supply. We have fewer farms, fewer farmers, so we have to make sure that our crops are available to us, that they're high yield. And so we've modified foods to be something that biologically they were never meant to be. And so they naturally cause a lot of inflammation. So there are some basic food groups that we just know or tend to be really inflammatory. And so understanding what foods specifically for you are inflammatory, and alcohol is one of them. I'm just going to say it. Someone, you're going to get mad at me. I don't care. Be mad at me. There is no biological need <laughs> in our species to, to have alcohol. Yeah. There just isn't. Now, I'm also quick to make sure I tell people I'm a realist. I live in the real world. You know what I mean? And if someone said to me that I couldn't have a slice of cheesecake once in a while, like I'll join the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm done. I'm out. Like forget it. See you. I'll, I'll do something else. Yeah. Um, but again, we, we have to just accept the realism in some things and say no one needs cheesecake every day. And I think it's just the awareness. So if you know that's something that may throw off your digestive yeah. health or if you know that's something that might not make you feel great let's be aware of it but also right. find balance that's, oh you're so and right I, and i think that that lab testing and understanding maybe what gut health issues you have it takes away that mystery yeah. and for me that lowered so much stress just knowing okay i'm sensitive to almonds celery broccoli whatever else it is mm -hmm. knowing that this is how i'm going to feel after i consume this food yeah. or even let's talk about dairy and gluten yeah. Those are two things too that I did remove for a while. I started to feel so much better after cutting it out for two years that I can consume those foods now in moderation and, and feel okay. And you know what your limit is. And I know what you my know limit is. You know where you're at. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about 
being a patient with you guys is that you, the end goal was to get my body back to that point, not to make these changes to where it's, I have to maintain eating no gluten, no dairy, right. no refined sugar, right. never having a glass of wine ever again yeah. in my life. You guys preach balance. And I was able to get back to that point where now I know my limits. I know that I can have these foods in moderation and my body doesn't have those immediate symptoms. Yeah. And I, listen, again, I live in a real world and I say, I don't ever want patients to be food paralyzed or food paranoid. But when you understand these and you become in control, you know the answer. You do. Um, if, if you decide, hey, look, I'm, I, we're doing it. I'm, I'm going out. We're having a, a night out with some friends. We're doing some cheesecake and some wine and some strawberries. This is going to be great. Shut up and enjoy the cheesecake. You know what I mean? Like just enjoy it and have a good time. But now you know that, hey, I'm going to be kind of miserable the, yeah, <laughs> the next day. Yeah. So I'm probably not going to be wanting to go to the wedding or go out to the movie. Or, exactly. uh, but again, you're now you're back in control of, of your body. When you understand your symptoms and you know what's causing that, you get to be in control of it. Yeah. And I think that awareness is so important. And just speaking more on gut health, I know aside from the food sensitivity test that I did, we also talked a lot about candida overgrowth yeah. and SIBO and other gut health conditions. So right. can you go into detail about what candida overgrowth is? Another test that's really great is a stool sample test. Actually taking a sample and, and looking at what's in your GI tract. So candida is, is interesting. One of the things that I tell folks is if you take the number of cells in your body that are genetically human and you count them up, and then you take all of the cells in your GI tract that are by definition not human, the human cells are outnumbered. You're a minority in your own body from that perspective. And so we've got a lot of bacteria, fungi, microorganisms in our GI tract that we need. We need them to be able to digest the foods that we have. We need them to help us make the chemicals that our body needs to function. And candida is one of them. It's, it's all over our body. It's in our GI tract. If there becomes an imbalance in that ecosystem, and the example I give folks is we learned this in the 10th grade. We learned about ecology. If you have a forest and you've got rabbits and foxes, and what happens if you go in and get rid of all the foxes? The rabbit population overgrows, doesn't it? And so these cute little bunnies, you know, I'm a bunny dad. We've got bunnies at home, so I'm always free. I save the bunnies <laughs> in the that. forest. But the bunnies overgrow, so they, they eat more of the grass, right? And so... Uh, now you have erosion and now you have trees falling and all this sort of thing. So there has to be a balance in the ecosystem. It's the same thing in our gut. So if you get rid of some of the competitors in your gut and you have an overgrowth of candida, now you can start having symptoms because in moderation, as we keep saying, some of the byproduct of candida is beneficial to our body. But if we get too much of that byproduct, if we get too much overgrowth of gut candida, we get symptoms. And then the other thing that can happen is some of those microorganisms start migrating to other areas of our GI tract, and that causes symptoms. That's the concept of SIBO we've, we've mentioned before. SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And what that means is you've got bacteria that it's not supposed to be in your small intestine moving into your small intestine. And can people look at changes in their stool to kind of yeah. identify that this could be an issue and that it's something they need to look into? Or what are the symptoms that people may notice when dealing with SIBO or candida overgrowth? Yeah, one of the, the big symptoms for SIBO that we see is bloating, especially right after they eat. I used to blow after every single thing that I ate. It doesn't matter if it was a salad yeah. or a piece of grilled chicken and avocado. I experienced, and I was doubled over it in pain yeah. after I would eat. I know that was one of the symptoms that I noticed right away, and I knew 
this wasn't right. So what what else in addition to bloating can people look out for? Anytime you have a disruption of the GI tract, you're going to have symptoms that show up, whether that be constipation or diarrhea. And a lot of people go through this waxing and waning where they'll have constipation for days and then diarrhea for a few days and then constipation. So your GI tract should be really a pretty regular system. You can look at your stool. Your stool will tell you a lot. My, my kids have made fun of me that me and Uncle CJ, Dr. Bobby, we get to talk about poop sometimes at work yeah. and we're just like five-year-olds. But your poop can tell you a lot about what's happening in your GI tract. So one of the things I like to refer people to is this Bristol stool scale. So you can go out and Google this thing and it's a way of evaluating your stool. If your stool is really hard, small, that's a Bristol one. So you see, again, go back to the bunnies, the, yeah. kind of the, the hard round right. rabbit, rabbit poo-looking stool. This tells us a couple of things. One is that you've got a really long motility time in your GI tract. So stuff's just kind of hanging out in your GI tract longer than it should, and it's not hydrated well. So that's level one, all the way up to like level four, level five, I'm sorry, level five, level six, where it's more runny stooled, more diarrhea. So that's a fast motility time. So you should, you want to aim for a Bristol stool scale of like a three to four. Somewhere around there should be soft, a more sausage pattern. That's going to let you know that your motility time is good. You want to, it'll tell you how your hydration status is in your body. The food, what you eat, how you eat will change the color of your stool. But again, it's one of those things that I don't, what, people seem to be afraid to look at their stool. Yeah, like, it's such uh, an important, I mean, you can, it's something that hopefully we're doing every single day. If everything's right. going smoothly, that can be such an indicator of our health. So it is important to evaluate, right. but I know people think it's so gross when you talk about it, but if but you can Google that, is it the Bristol chart? Is that what Bristol, it's called? The Bristol stool scale. Yeah. The Bristol stool scale. Yeah. So we should be in that three Three to, three to four. Three to four range. Mm -hmm. And then anything that maybe is not in that three to four range could be a sign of either dehydration or some type of gut health condition. Yeah, some sort of, of gut imbalance. And then that's where, again, from a functional medicine side, we, I, let's get a sample. Let's see what's growing. And the other thing, too, that I know we talked a lot about is leaky gut yeah. and what's taking place when you have leaky gut. So correct me if I'm wrong, but are some of those food particles that you're consuming, if there's... I don't know how to describe this properly, but let's say there's, say that gut lining's not strong. Yeah. Is that getting into the bloodstream? What's happening when you have leaky gut? You nailed it, exactly. So when you think about the type of cells that line the GI tract, they're called epithelial columnar cells. So they're long and they're almost finger-like, right? Okay. And, and they have really nice tight junctions. And so what's important is that we want to be able to absorb the things uh, from our GI tract that we need. We also want to keep the things out that we don't want. So the concept behind le leaky gut syndrome is those columns of cells start getting space in between them. Okay. They're not tightly packed together. And so when they're not tightly packed together, toxins and chemicals that would normally stay in our GI tract and we would excrete them now have access to our blood supply. They now have access, they have the ability to get absorbed into our blood supply. And so in turn, that causes bloat, inflammation. Bloating, abdominal pain, cramping, fatigue. And so the other thing that, that people don't necessarily remember or think about is almost all those hormones that we've talked about, whether it's cortisol, whether it's estrogens or progesterones, they almost all start in your gut. In fact, what's, here's what's the other thing that's cool. The neurotransmitters in your brain, the, the chemicals in your brain that make your brain work are almost exclusively made in your gut. Wow. Yeah. If you're not producing enough dopamine... Dopamine is definitely one of them. Serotonin is another hormone that everyone knows a lot about. Yeah. It's connected with depression. That comes from your gut. 
And so there's a lot of connection between your brain and your gut. And, and in fact, what I tell patients is there's a gut everything connection. And so if you have an unhealthy gut, we see some of that show up as depression, anxiety, mood disorders, things like that. But I'll tell you that there's this gut skin connection, right? So we know that if your gut isn't healthy, we can see things like, you know, oily skin, overly dry skin, inflammation, skin irritation, redness, itchiness, that sort of thing. So again, I tell patients like, don't take my word for it. Uh, there's been, I would say since 2009, there's just been an explosion of research connecting things back to the gut. And you can see in mice models and in human models even where we know that these things are connected to unhealthy guts. So if you don't have a diverse ecosystem, a balanced, diverse ecosystem in your gut, we can see that in symptoms everywhere else in your body. So what are some things that you recommend to help promote that diverse ecosystem and to strengthen that gut lining? The first thing I like to recommend is getting tested. Mm -hmm. Let's see what's happening in your gut, what you're missing. There's these little guys called firmicutes. You got to have them, right? And what's interesting about gut health is that we haven't reached a point where, like other lab tests, we know you have to have a certain number of firmicutes or you have to have a certain number of this bacteria, that bacteria but you have to have a balance. And so some of the really cool research that's been out there shows that, listen, people that have a very narrow set of bacteria in their ecosystem and their gut tend to have more symptoms than those that have a large variety of microorganisms in their gut. First of all, getting tested is important, seeing what's actually happening in your gut. And then secondly, looking at inflammatory foods, removing those things that aren't good for your gut, that are good for your body getting good sleep, exercise. I mean, these are things that I mean, we all talk about, you know, right. to help heal your gut. Hydration is super important for your gut. When I've had a few aha moments in my career, and one of them had to do with gut health, and that's really what got me keyed into to focusing on gut health, and that's when the human body is formed, the first two structures that are really easy to see, and again, you don't take my word for it, you can go YouTube, you can go look at this out on it, but when the sperm and the egg meet and the fetus starts to develop, we see two structures pretty early on. One is the neural tube. That makes sense. That's where the brain's going to grow. That's where the spinal cord's going to develop. And the other is what's called the alimentary canal. It's a real fancy way of just saying your gut. And I thought about that and thought, wow, if that early on in, in this species development, if that's one of the first structures that gets made, how important is that to the species? It should be top priority. It's, think, it's right? one of the top yeah. priorities, right? I mean, it's 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 coming along about the same time you're, where your brain and spinal cord are going to go. So it's pretty important. So recognizing that and focusing on your gut can actually help so many people feel so much better. Once I improved my gut health, I noticed a difference in my mood, in my skin, in my sleep, in my energy. So many other things improved after yeah. I really focused on my gut health. And just going back to some solutions. Would you recommend supplements like MCT oil, L-glutamine powder? Is there anything that people can incorporate? And I know testing first is always so yeah. important. So yeah, all those things are, are, are great. You know, that we talk about prebiotics. prebiotics, probiotics, and I'm often quick to counsel folks and say, look, be careful because a, a probiotic isn't a probiotic, isn't a probiotic. Again, I, I've had patients come see us and I, the, oh, I take a probiotic. I take a pro every day for the last five years. And we do a stool culture and like, yeah, I can tell what probiotic <laughs> you're taking because it's exactly the same as your probiotic. So oh you need gosh. to diversify. You need to switch your probiotic. You need something a little bit different. So do you recommend switching probiotics? every other year? Yeah, honestly, even about every three to six months. Wow, okay. Yeah, do something a little bit. And, and pay attention to that label and know what's in your probiotic. 
and swap that out. Just want, for a different brand or a different strain. Uh, different strains are important. When we talk about brands of supplements, that gets in, into this world that we get really protective over because there are so many supplements out there. There are. And unfortunately, it's not regulated like drug companies are. Now, that can be a, a benefit, but maybe not. But you want to make sure you have a really good brand that's high quality, that's absorbable and usable, right? So it doesn't do any good to take a calcium supplement if the form of calcium isn't a form that's even available to your body to use. So again, when I try to gear things for people's specific needs. So MCT oils is great. The A lot of folks like kombucha. Yeah. I'm very cautious about kombucha. I'm not a big kombucha fan. I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of the taste, but here's what I tell people. Kombucha is amazing if you have a healthy GI tract. Go for it all day long. I don't care. When you don't have a healthy GI tract, kombucha can actually make things worse. That's how I felt. I felt like yeah. when I drank it, I don't know if it was the acidity. I did not feel good after I drank kombucha, yeah. so I kind of just crossed that one yeah. off my list. Eating a wide variety of foods is important. Or reducing processed foods. I know that's something that you and I talk about a lot. Removing processed foods, refined sugars, high fructose corn syrups, eliminating those things can actually help your GI tract heal and function in a lot better, a better way. There's also changes we can make in our lifestyle to improve both our hormone and gut health. Can you run through maybe some simple steps people can change in their morning routine or their evening routine that can help balance hormones and improve gut health? Yeah. Morning routine, one of the easiest things you can do is drink water when you wake up. Drink water when you wake up. I think people, we often forget that you know, we've been asleep for you know six, seven, eight hours, and most people wouldn't go six, seven, eight hours during the day without drinking some water, or having something to eat or that sort of thing. So as soon as you wake up in the morning, rehydrate. Hydration is so important. I think it's important in the morning to spend some quality time with yourself. And you know, we talk about, you know, reducing stress and reducing the cortisol. How do you reduce stress? Lots of ways to do that. But breathing is an amazingly effective way. I teach people the, what I, I call the four, seven, eight method. Breathe in for four, hold it for seven, exhale for eight. And I say, listen, you can do this at a stoplight. You could you can do this while you're waiting for your coffee to brew and getting your day started. So just take some quiet time and, and breathe. You know, again, yoga, I don't think you have to go and, and join a yoga studio and buy the mats and, you know, get the big investment in into it. But just doing some simple stretches right there in your kitchen in the morning is great for your body and really sets the tone for the day. So those things can really help reduce stress. Exercise, again, we talked about exercise. I'm not advocating you go out and, and start getting a personal best on your bench press, but doing some light exercise is really great. And some other things we talk about is reducing caffeine intake. That's what I want to talk to you about. Caffeine and alcohol were two yeah. of the things, and I know we both said balance is key, but when I really focused on reducing my intake for two years straight, I noticed such a big difference in my energy levels, my brain fog in the morning, right. even my ability to see results from workouts. So how important do you think that is to cut back on caffeine and alcohol for somebody who is having? It's vital. It really is. And again, I tell people there's no biological reason to consume alcohol. There really isn't. There's not much biological reason to consume caffeine either, if I'm being honest. But as a guy that loves coffee, though, I love coffee. I enjoy coffee. But part of that is being honest about your consumption. And being a real person sometimes means being real with yourself and, and recognizing that I don't drink that much. I only drink maybe once or twice a week. But if that once or twice a week is a binge drink situation, then that's not good for your body either. So being very, and again, you'll watch the news and you'll say, oh, you know, 
two glasses of wine a day is great for cardiovascular health and all those kind of things that they put the research out there for. But we're talking about gut health and we're talking about overall physiologic health for, for you and even mental health. Alcohol is rarely the answer. So being honest with yourself and, and reducing that. And again, I'm, I'm a real person. And I tell people, listen, if your favorite cousin is getting married and, you know, you want to have a glass of champagne, shut up and have a glass exactly. of champagne. Exactly, special I mean, occasions, it's, it's, it's old, it's all know, about balance. Uh, the human body is amazing. And when it is operating at, at its peak efficiency, you should be able to manage these things and not have symptoms for days and days after. But if you continue to have symptoms, that should be a reality check that I'm doing too much of this reducing caffeine. And again, I think, you know, I will tell you, I have a cup of coffee in the morning. It's the size of two cups of coffee. <laughs> I technically have one cup You just combine two into one. But it's two. Yeah. So, you know, uh, being real about that to myself is my, how much coffee do you drink? The reality is I drink two cups of coffee, even though it's in one, one vessel, cup. you know. Yeah. So being real about that. And then t- typically the other side of that is, how we doctor those things up, right? How With much the vanilla and the caramel syrup <laughs> yeah. and the whipped cream on top and yeah. all of that sugar first thing in the morning is going to spike your insulin and why are you crashing midday? It exactly. all comes You're, back to each other. And, and uh, the other side of that is is paying attention to high fructose corn syrup. Again, I tell people there, there's no biological need for high fructose corn syrup at all. And in fact, we're one of the very few, if not the only industrialized country that even allows high fructose corn syrup. And that should make you pay attention to what yeah what's happening with that so i think those are some really easy ways focusing on stress reduction breathing stretching setting good intentions for the day having a good positive mindset about the day forgiving yourself from yesterday look uh, sometimes they have taco bar at work okay shut up about taco bar at work do the best you can with what you have and every incremental change will be beneficial for you and i think sometimes It's also really important for people to understand that when you're making these small changes and you're consistent with these small changes, you'll end up seeing the long-term results. But it's not, sometimes maybe the Band-Aid solutions will make you see results or feel results quicker. But personally, from my experience, taking that time, healing from the inside out, even though I was like, okay, I've been doing this consistently for three months, I haven't seen a change yet. I hit that six-month mark and I started to feel like a new human. So I think patience and consistency with those simple things that you just mentioned go such a long way. And didn't you have a moment where you had done some of those things and you kind of started feeling great and then you did have the cheesecake or you did have the, and, and, and I tell patients sometimes I celebrate that. Yeah. That's almost a win. I'm like, do it yeah, because here's what happens. You feel so awful afterward that you stop obsessing about it Yes, and you realize I don't want to feel like that. (laughs) You don't want to feel like that again. Okay. So all I have to do is, is not consume this thing at the taco bar at work instead of having four tacos yeah you know i'll just have one have it in moderation and and be more aware then it it actually educates you more to have that aha moment that wow i feel like crap when i eat that it really does let your body be your own teacher and let your symptoms i love that you just said that body be your own teacher yeah Yeah, and that was one of the things that made the biggest difference for me was feeling the way my body was responding knowing that hey i don't ever want to feel this way again you know what if i have to not eat the cheesecake for a few months until my body can really 
eat it and then not have the symptoms for a few days, then I'll make that change from now. But I think understanding that and knowing I don't want to feel this way, it makes it so much easier to make that change and be happy that you're making the change. And two, you know, through this process, I found so many other foods. I started eating refined sugar-free. You can have delicious recipes at home that are refined sugar-free. There's so many options out there where you can make this process enjoyable. And that's one of the things that I loved about working with you is that you guys really taught me that healing from the inside out and holistic healing can be such a amazing opportunity to really educate yourself about your own body. I learned so much about my own body and yeah, just grow more in your health and heal from the inside out, but enjoy the experience along the way. And experiment with it. And and I tell people, listen, it can be simple. It should be simple and sustainable. And there's absolutely a way to do that. You have so much amazing knowledge to share and all of your tips and everything that you've shared today has been so incredible. So I want to thank you so much for coming on today and also kind of just let you know where I'm at today. My cycle has been regulated for over four years now. I have more energy, better sleep, clear skin, the occasional pimple before my menstrual cycle, better mental health, less bloat, and I really do feel at home in my own body. That's and amazing. it's all because of you uh, and Dr. Pablo. So thank you so much for all that you've done. You took the time to educate me about my health. You didn't make me feel like what I was experiencing was part of womanhood. And I just right. can't thank you enough for uh, everything that you've done. You're so welcome. And, and you validate everything that we do every day and that we want to provide our patients with the information and empower them to take control. And you've done all that. You did all that work and you deserve every bit of happiness and joy that you're getting from it. So congratulations. It's such a full circle moment to be sitting here with you and be talking about all this. So thank you so much for coming on. I also want to let everybody know where to find you, how to book an appointment with you, If they live in Indiana, what's the protocol? And then if they're out of state, what's the protocol? So you can go to our website, www.integrativemla.com. And you can learn more about us there and and, and what we do. And you can actually book an appointment there for consultation. You can call our office. We have an office in Carmel, Indiana. The number is uh, 800-538-5513. And if you want to book a consultation or or come in uh, or ask questions about testing or that sort of thing. The other thing that we are kicking off is our, our Dinner with Doc series. On a, a monthly or bi-monthly basis, we want to host at a local restaurant a dinner for folks who want to learn more about us and what we do. We're not going to try to diagnose folks or you know get in too deep, but just being available to help share our vision, our passion, and help educate folks about what we do from an integrative and functional medicine side. One question we get a lot is whether or not we accept insurance. And so what... I try to explain to folks is that we are a cash-based model at our practice. There are a few reasons for that. One is it helps us keep our costs down, believe it or not. It's actually expensive to be in insurance plans. Secondly, it gives us the freedom to order exams and order tests and things without using the traditional insurance model of you didn't fail this therapy or this isn't medically necessary, so we're going to deny this. And and that just causes a lot of frustration among patients and us as staff. So we would like to spend as much time as we can and get as much data as we can without the encumbrances of an insurance company. So that'll be really important for patients to hear. And there are a lot of functional medicine doctors that do have an insurance model. You can call the office if you would like to be on the invite list for that. Let us know your contact information and uh, we'll get you in. Amazing. Well, I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. We're definitely going to have to have Dr. Amick on for round two because he has so much information to share. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And I can't wait to have you back. I'm I'm excited. Thank (laughs) you. 
thank you so much for listening and hanging out with me today. You can catch a new episode of Wellness Her Way every Monday. I want to hear from you, so please subscribe, leave a review for this podcast, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Be sure to follow at Wellness Her Way Podcast on Instagram to connect with me and send in all the questions and topics you'd like to hear about. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of this amazing community. I'll see you next week.